Hello, hello, hello. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. This is your host, Dwayne Otley. Uh, today is Sunday, July 18th. Uh, we're coming to you to give you the common sense during the week. We're going to talk about Moscow Mitch, why white people fear black people, Liz Cheney, the Arizona audit by a cyber company, uh, the Haitian assassination, Uh, Trump at CPAC, uh, Puerto Rico statehood, um, explaining the Georgia voting bill because they're trying to make it seem like voter ID is the issue and it's not. And our main story is the Democrats, Texas Democrats that run to, that ran to Washington D.C. to avoid uh, a special session. All right, uh, we are now available on Spotify. So rate us, review us on Google, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Give us five stars. Make us the best podcast going. Let's get started. But he's lost. Not while I'm standing. Welcome to the party. Uh, again, this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Now available on Spotify. Rate us, review us. Give us five stars. Uh, we're going to start out with a little sidebar. Uh, the crazy Make America First party, I guess they are. Gates, the one who's on an investigation, and the Nut Green have been kicked out of... Uh, I think three, three uh, places in California to break their free speech rally. But don't they understand that we have common sense that making America first is not something that America wants, uh, but it's America. So we're free to do what we want. Uh, in our first story, we're talking about who? Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell says, his number one uh, priority is to block uh, Biden's agenda. But what has he done for his state of Kentucky? So here's an ad that's going to run. Kentucky is poor and they don't really have anything. Well, how are we ever going to have anything if our government won't invest in our infrastructure? But we're people too. We're American citizens. And we deserve access to clean, affordable drinking water. This water disgusts me. I'm afraid of this water. We deserve roads and bridges. This whole road, just lead off. I know what we could have. I know what it could be like. And I want that for my people. I'm Barbie Ann Maynard, and I'm from Martin County, Kentucky. I've been fighting for infrastructure for over two decades. I want to show you the infrastructure issues here in Martin County. We use bottled water for everything, for brushing our teeth. For washing our hands, for washing our face. And when I take a bath, 
good stuff until I've used my antibacterial soap for my body because of the bacteria that gets in our water through our line breaks. October 11th of 2000, there was a cold slurry pond embankment that broke and it dumped 306 million gallons of arsenic and heavy metal into our water supply right here and it ran into the Tad River, which is where we get our water. The chemicals that they're treating our water with are causing disinfectant byproducts. We have the warnings on the back of our water bills that says if you are pregnant, infant, elderly, have a compromised immune system, consult a physician before consuming this water. If consumed over many years, it causes liver damage, kidney damage, central nervous system damage, and twice it says increased risk of cancer. And we've got those warnings on our bill for decades. Okay, we're at our water treatment plant. It was set up in the 1950s to serve 600 homes. We have two clarifiers that are currently down, and the system is on the edge of total collapse. This is the reason that 90% of the county relies solely on bottled drinking water. But realistically, if we have $50 million tomorrow, in five years, we would have clean water in Marshfield. And that still sounds like a long time, but we're going on 21 right now. If we don't start now, we'll never see it. So the infrastructure issue you'll see will be the roads. Then we'll see the bridges. The coal mines mined under our roads. So they're hollow spots. There was no enforcement of the weight limit. So they let the trucks drive overloaded on our roads. Look, this is what we have to work with in March County. Look, it's all the way over here. And when it goes, the whole thing is going to go. So we're going to be blocked again. This was the Nolan's Hole Bridge. This was our only way to get to the interstate. Once it got damaged, instead of repairing it, they just closed it off. When you lose bridges, roads, you lose opportunities to grow. Businesses can't come in if they can't get their product out. Here you go. Here, roll my window down. There's about 25 houses on the other side of that road, and they have no bridge, no access in or out. We're standing on an abandoned strip mine, and although coal is gone, they left us with the possibility for something else to come in here. We have large electric lines, and we have large flat bottoms that would be perfect for factories to come in here. But because we have lack of infrastructure, that causes companies to not want to come and invest in Martin County. We want good paying jobs, and I can see that here. The people in Eastern Kentucky, we're workers here. We're resilient. But you have to have something to work with. We're 50 years behind the rest of the world. We need to catch up. We need investment in our infrastructure. Yeah, man. What's up with America? Why Why are we letting uh, Mitch McConnell, who leads that state, to lead the Republican Senate? That dude is not even doing anything for his state. Are you trying to tell me that they have an abandoned strip mine and you can't put solar panels in there to to give them the power to to make manufacturing to invest in the country? Why don't we invest in our country? Yeah, the big cities are fine. New York, Florida, Miami, LA, Washington, Texas. Oh, let me not start about Texas, but 
I don't understand why we why it's so hard to invest in us. You got the top one percent. They taking the money and running home with it. Again, trickle down economics does not work. Um right now Biden's trying to pitch a three point five trillion dollar spending bill on Capitol Hill, but you know the the players that trying to block that on the Democratic side. Yep, you know, Manchin. What has he done for his state? He, and he flew to Texas to to be wooed by GOP donors in Texas. But let's listen to the story. Biden tonight back on Capitol Hill urging Senate Democrats to unite around a massive three and a half trillion dollar spending proposal. We're going to get this done. We are getting this done. Thank you. Focusing on social programs and climate change. Democrats fighting to go it alone on this package, but that means they can't afford to lose a single vote. Progressives like Bernie Sanders, who wanted even more new spending, sounding satisfied. This is, I would say, the most consequential piece of legislation being proposed since the Great Depression and FDR. But moderate Democrats tonight less certain about the steep price tag. Is $3.5 trillion too high? Depends on who can pay for it. It'd still be globally competitive. The proposal invests in universal pre-K and paid family leave, as well as climate change initiatives, and an expansion of Medicare to add dental, vision, and hearing benefits. Democrats want to pay for it in part with tax hikes on the wealthy and corporations. Republicans slamming it as a tax and spending spree that will send the debt and inflation skyrocketing. Well, the $3.5 trillion number is a shocking figure. What we're seeing here are the outlines in the Democrats' radical train, their freight train to socialism, and everybody, one way or another in America, is going to end up paying for it. This plan is the second of two separate proposals President Biden's asking Congress to support, the other a trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure deal. But tonight, questions remain whether enough Republicans will stay on board. Yeah. See the Republican talking point, socialism? Don't be scared of socialism. Socialism only fails if we let a dictator take office hence Trump and again the 3.5 hey if we gotta uh, get uh, give give a little bit to get a lot I don't I don't have no problem with that but mansion again again he is the linchpin and he's gonna not want to tax a rich people because he's rich most of the people in Congress are rich. They don't want to, they're rich or they have corporate uh, lobbyists that give them money. Uh, they don't want to give, they want to have their their sponsors be taxed. Again, we've been, what, 30 years since, uh, let's see, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. The top 1% has 99% of the wealth. I don't understand why they don't understand investing in the country is the right thing to do. All right, moving on. We're going to just give Roland Martin a little a love right now because check out this, uh, uh, I guess, a, a sp- back and forth of crazy congresswoman check this out 
And that's why, folks, uh, we use this opportunity with our crazy head about people segment to show you this. This is the idiotic congresswoman from Arizona, Lauren Boebert, trying to question a sister, the acting White House budget director, Shamonda Young, I think the one- and asking her uh, about uh, Joe Biden's uh, request when it comes to uh, the wall. If y'all want to see what black intellect and patience looks like, with a clueless white woman, press plan. I think the one question I, I have uh, for you, Director, and most Americans have for this president and this administration is just how long will you be ceding the southern border to the cartels? Uh, I'd like to remind everyone and uh, who cares about where border funding came from last administration, we are returning uh, the billions of dollars that were taken from our men and women and troops uh, in uniform uh, for the southern border work. So this administration is returning uh, Department of Defense money uh, that bipartisan members decried uh, as uh, reclaiming my time. Projects. Re- 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 excuse me, reclaiming my time. We're not talking about uh, the, the funding that was taken away Right now, we are currently paying contractors to not build. I ask you, how long will you be ceding the southern border to the cartels? That is my question to you, Director. Uh, well, given the bipartisan concern from the stealing from DOD, I thought it was important uh, to highlight that and also highlight uh, that we are uh, moving away from a unsustainable border wall that has not worked. Uh, to technology, as you pointed out. To Reclaiming my time. Reclaiming my time. I need you to answer the question that I'm asking you. This is my time. How long will you be feeding our southern border to the cartel? Uh, that's not a question uh, with an assumption in which I'm, I'm going to assume. Uh, so we can certainly talk about the, the reassessment. Uh, our time is up. Thank you very much, Director. <laughs> Yo, man. See what happens when you give uh, a nerd who'd been picked on in high school power. Uh, give kudos to the the black queen that didn't come across the, if they were in the same room, I think she'd have come across the the room and smacked in the face because that was, how was she asking her uh, a military question and she's a, a budget director. But you know what? They want to move the goalpost. They took money from the DOD to build a wall uh, and a fake issue. Uh, this is America. Uh, we're supposed to be the land of the free, home of the brave. But the only the land of the free unless you are underneath the Republican Party. But uh, that's what crazy white people are. Uh, moving on to our next story. Uh, the Arizona audit. Um, again, Republicans are trying to justify uh, Trump's loss or justify, yeah, that the election was stolen, which it was not. But they had a, a, a an audit in Arizona, and the people told them that uh, we need more time. You know what that means? We need more time to take your money. So this is a common sense party spin on it. They want to milk the taxpayers out of billion, millions of dollars to, to try to find fake shit. So 
Uh, let's listen to this story. The audit that they're doing um, in Arizona, they launched it in April. They said it would take three weeks. It's, of course, now mid-July, and they're still going strong. They made clear today that they're definitely finding all the fraud they've been fantasizing about. But it's definitely going to take lots more investigation, lots more materials, probably lots more donations from Trump supporters nationwide. It looks like they will subpoena more stuff from the county, Maricopa County, where they got all these ballots from. The way they were talking about it today, it sounds like they think they've got weeks to go, maybe months still to go. It's such a big, complex investigation. There's no sign, actually, that there was anything wrong with the presidential vote in Arizona. The head of Cyber Ninjas, the guy on the left, this random QAnon-promoting guy who Arizona Republicans assigned to lead the audit, uh, he kept insisting at this hearing today that this is an incredibly complicated, incredibly complex, very, very dis difficult process, and therefore it's going to take a lot more time and obviously a lot more money for him. <laughs> it's going to take lots more work to figure it all out. Um, Maricopa County itself, the county they took all the ballots and the voting machines from, uh, they responded today with this, quote, it's complicated and difficult for Senate contractors to do this audit because they are not qualified to do this audit. It would be like asking Doug Logan from Cyber Ninjas to play point guard for the Phoenix Suns. That, too, would be complicated and difficult because he's not qualified to do that. That was from the county itself today. The chair, the Republican chair of the uh, County Board of Supervisors responded to this briefing on the Arizona Clown Show audit today uh, with this. He said, quote, it's clear the people hired by Arizona Senate leadership to supposedly bring integrity to our elections are instead just bringing incompetence. At today's briefing, the Senate's uncertified contractors asked a lot of open-ended questions, portraying as suspicious what's actually normal and well-known to people who work in elections. In some cases, they dropped bombshell numbers that are simply not accurate. What we heard today represents an alternate reality that has veered out of control since the November general election. Senate leadership should be ashamed. They broadcast the half-baked theories of the deep rig crowd to the world today. To Senate leaders, I say, stop accusing us of not cooperating when we've given you everything qualified auditors would need to do this job. Finish your audit, release the report, and be prepared to defend it in court. Former President Trump said today that Arizona must decertify its election uh, because he won there and he won in all the other swing states too. He is ready to be reinstated as president. Why is it taking so long? He said today, quote, the Arizona Senate Patriots are moving forward with the final results to be announced in the not-too-distant future. But based on today's hearing, why even wait? Yeah, why even wait? President Biden should just move out now because Republicans and cyber ninjas have fixed the problem of Trump apparently losing the election. Now he gets to be president again. Why even wait? So, I mean, in all seriousness, that whole thing about Trump thinking he's still president and, importantly, telling his supporters that the fraud has been proven and Biden's only pretending to be president and he got there based on a crime and he needs to get thrown out because he's not a real president, he's illegitimate, that little thing, that's getting worse and not better right now. That's heading faster and faster toward a cliff that keeps getting higher and higher. Ignoring that problem is not making it go away. Yep, that's uh, from MSNBC, 
Uh, yeah, there. You hired a company that named Cyber Ninjas to figure out fraud, man. They're trying to. They're trying to get as much money away from the taxpayers as possible. Uh, this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Uh, yes, read us, review us. Available now on Spotify. Google, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, you can go to our website. It's it's linked on the the podcast. Uh, yeah, Trump is like a stain on American history, but we're trying to bring common sense to the people. And Arizona's they willfully spending taxpayer funds to prove something that's not there, but. More for the common sense. This is uh, CNN. Uh, Trump was at C- CPAC spreading lies, but check this out. This weekend, we spoke to a lot of people, um, probably 20 or 30 people. Every single one of them, pretty much everybody, uh, believed that both the election was stolen uh, and also um, lies about the insurrection. I mean, it is quite sad when, you know, speaking to so many folks who have bought into this conspiracy theory about the election, which is now undermining their fate in American democracy. You know, so many folks told us as well that they might not even trust uh, the results of the next year's midterm elections. Uh, do, you, do you accept he lost the election? I accept that on paper things happened to make it appear that way. I'm, I, I don't know what would have happened. I find it very questionable that he lost, given the support that he had. Do you think what happened on January 6th was a... Uh, stain on Trump's presidency? Absolutely not, yeah. He didn't invoke any kind of violence. He didn't say anything that was making, that was all just, just honestly ridiculous. A few people acted out out of millions of people that attended, or well, I wouldn't say millions, but thousands, close to a million. Yes, I would. I'm a Trump supporter. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you accept that he lost the election? Yeah, he did lose the election, but we believe, I believe, uh, there are some discrepancies, and those will be revealed at some point. What are you hoping to hear from Trump? Uh, that he is going to uh, regain his rightful seat as president. In 2024? No. As soon as the election is overturned for the election fraud. Do you guys think the election was fair? No. 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 They tried to tell us the Tarrant County election. We went blue for the first time since 1962. It's not called an insurrection to me. What about it was an insurrection? They started the Capitol. Who? Who? Who's they? The Trump supporters, right? Bull I mean, I'm sorry. Bull You don't know who those people were. No, some Trump supporters were invited in. And there's video and there's yeah, audio that they said... So a lot to unpack there, John. Um, you did hear from one woman who mentioned that Trump could come back before 2024. And we know that was a concern of uh, the Department of Justice last week, uh, who said, you know, this sort of talk, this fantasy that he could be reinstated uh, into office before 2024, somehow the, the election could be overturned, that there was concerns that that could provoke uh, further violence. Most people we spoke to, um, you know, at CPAC this weekend did not believe that this um, re- reinstatement thing would actually work out. Most are focused on looking towards 2024, but John, pretty much everybody we spoke to uh, believed the election was stolen. I'm going to talk to Bill Crystal. He's the director of Defending Democracy Together, 
Uh, Bill, I really appreciate you joining us. Look, there's a lot to discuss from CPAC, but I want to start with the vaccination thing, and I want to play it one more time because you have a crowd of Republicans, conservatives, cheering low vaccination rates. Listen. Because clearly they were hoping, the government was hoping, that they could sort of sucker 90% of the population into getting vaccinated, and it, and, and it, and it isn't happening, right? There, there's a y- younger people. I mean, is this, is this rooting for people to die, Bill? Yeah, it's good morning, John. It's, it's pretty horrifying, though. I do want to say first, you're absolutely right about the penalty kicks. Do not let Brianna ridicule you or, or shame you out of your true position that they should keep playing until someone scores a legitimate goal. Getting on to more serious things, well, maybe that is the most serious thing. I don't know. You've probably already gotten 27,000 emails, you know, attacking you for not understanding that penalty kicks are the greatest thing ever or whatever. But I'm with you on that, John. Look, on the vaccine, it's horrifying. I mean, I never thought we'd see a big movement be more irresponsible than they've been on the election denial. And therefore, and what that implies, with the attack on voting rights and the attempt to lay the groundwork for subverting the next election. But I've got to say on vaccines, a large part of the conservative movement is, is even worse. Uh, they're encouraging behavior that will make people sick, kill some people, and keep the vaccine alive in the country, which ultimately endangers young people, people under 12 who don't have the vaccine yet, uh, and the rest of us, because at some point, we, you know, if the stronger the virus is, the more the variants can spread uh, and, and more, can, more can come to exist. Uh, the more we are ultimately in danger. I actually think people need to be tougher on this. And this kind of, you know, Dr. Thomas is very good on this, but, you know, well, we have to encourage people to do more is what a lot of people are saying. We've got to make the case. I don't know. I think we need to think about something close to mandating it or making benefits dependent on it or making admission to all kinds of places, whether it's schools, universities, uh, you know, airplanes, facilities, a contingent on being vaccinated. I mean, it really is ridiculous for us to be tolerating what is now something that we wouldn't talk. We make people wear seat belts. We have speed limits. We have make kids show their vaccination card when they come to, uh, you know, from their doctor when they when they enroll in elementary or secondary school. Uh, we're just sort of letting this mass irresponsibility happen. But again, whatever we can do about it, you have an entire political movement uh, fostering this really damaging, uh, I don't even know what to call it, it's yeah. a view like Look, you know, you know, they also, you know, they, they booed Fauci, you know, lock him up, all that kind of stuff with Fauci. I understand the need among some people to create villains, but the cheering for for low vaccination rates again, it, it's as if they're rooting for COVID. I just, I just never thought I'd see something like that. You know, it's right, John. And I mean, look, during the height of it, there were some arguments, not very good ones, but some arguments that we should be friendlier to opening up, a little less uh, constraining in terms of COVID. Those were sort of policy disputes, how fast do you open up, the ma- you know, how much do you insist on uh, masking and so forth, and outdoors. You know, there, was, there, there was at least some arguments on the other side. There's no argument here. As you say, this, this is simply denying the science, uh, encouraging terrible irresponsibility both to themselves and ultimately to others. Now, on a related front, and I don't, I really don't think it's completely disconnected. The former president spoke, and he used the word love to describe the people involved in the insurrection repeatedly, speaking fondly of those who overran the Capitol. Your take? Yeah, I mean, the the part, Trump has moved from being pretend apologetic about the insurrection 
to attacking those who attacked the insurrection, to helping block, encouraging blocking, or to investigation into the insurrection, to now just rooting for the insurrection. And some chunk of the Republican Party and the conservative movement have gone with them, and a huge chunk of the Republican Party and conservative elites are legitimating that. They're being quiet about it. They're certainly not speaking back against the president. So this is a terrible thing in terms of both because it's was false, and but for what it encourages in the future, in terms of uh, election subversion uh, going forward, it's it is pretty amazing. And, it, and again, Trump remain Trump is if you had said six months ago, it would be leading this show quite appropriately, talking about a Trump speech to CPAC, the former president who had lost. When does that ever happen? He is in, but but he has been brilliant in a certain way, in, in establishing control of the party. He launches these ridiculous legal suits that aren't that are winning court. The election suits didn't win the. It's not going to win, but it forces people to respond, and the party has rallied around him in, 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 to a degree that's really kind of extraordinary. Well, right, and I have to let you go, Bill, because my last question here is Charlie Dent, who we had last hour, former Republican congressman, called what we saw at CPAC a sideshow, and I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure it's a sideshow. Well, maybe the main event. I, I'm very much with you, John. I, I love Charlie Dent, but uh, people like Charlie, love Charlie Dent. If the Republican Party were Charlie Dent's Republican Party, I'd be thrilled. Uh, and therefore, Charlie wants to believe, frankly, that it's a sideshow. And look, we should all, people like Charlie, should work to try to make it a sideshow. But for now, I'm afraid it's the main show. It's the main tent of the circus. It's the main circus tent. <clears throat> and it's a very dangerous one. I mean, there's a kind of tendency to say, well, it's a little wacky. Look at those people. Funny, fun. They're dressed up funny, and they're saying incredible things. And here's one QAnon people. It is not funny. It is dangerous. Well, you know, could very well cost lives on several different fronts, whether it's... Yep, the Republican Party. That is the party of Trump. But guess what? That's what they want. I blame it on education. Education. They say black people are scared of are scared of the vaccine. Uh, poor white people are. Uh, they just, the Republicans still come up. They just make a, try to find a boogeyman. As long as they have someone to fight against, the Republican Party, they'll, they'll forever stay in power. Uh, yeah, they cheering for vaccines. Uh, we all need to get the vaccine so we can get back to normal. Oh, uh, we need the 70%. Uh, right now, I think we're at 50. Yeah, just to, you know what you need to do? They can't, they can't get a lot of scratch off without being vaccinated. Uh, I bet you'll be up to 90 then. Uh, this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Available on Google, Spotify, uh, YouTube. Uh, support, support the common sense. Uh, give us five star. Make us the best podcast out there. Our next story is on the state of Puerto Rico, uh, forty miles from my home. I think they should get a statehood. Give us more representation in the Senate and the House. Uh, here's a story from uh, CNN News. Potential statehood is certainly intensifying as the region grapples with growing economic inequality. A new CBSN Originals documentary examines what's at stake. Here's a preview. We're going through close to 15, uh, 16 years of an economic crisis in which different administrations have implemented austerity policies in which working families in Puerto Rico, uh, university students in Puerto Rico have been asked 
to carry a heavier part of the burden while receiving less and less essential services, while at the same time, that same government that's asking you to sacrifice more because we're in a crisis and we need you to sacrifice is telling these individuals, come, come to Puerto Rico, vacation in Puerto Rico, and in exchange for that, you don't pay taxes. And, and that's obviously a hypocrisy that the people of Puerto Rico are no longer willing to tolerate. Manuel uh, Natal Abuelo joins me now to talk more about all of this, and we just saw him uh, featured in the Originals documentary. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Manuel. I did, did not say the name of your political party because I think I probably would have done a terrible job, but can you say the name, please, for us? Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana, which roughly translates to the Citizens' Victory Movement, which is a progressive political party here in Puerto Rico. All right, so I want to get, later on I want to get into, you know, what the political party represents, but I want the viewers to know that, you know, your political party is one that is in favor of breaking what many see as a colonial sort of relationship between Puerto Rico and the U.S. So we'll get into that in a bit. But how would you describe Puerto Rico's current economy, and how much control does Puerto Rico have over its economic fate? A lot of people may not know, but there's an oversight board put in place that was put in place to help Puerto Rico restructure its debt. How is that working out? Well, Puerto Rico has been in an economic crisis since 2006. That has led to different government administrations to implement a series of austerity policies in order to supposedly alleviate the crisis. And the effect has been completely the opposite. The crisis has intensified. Unemployment has gone up in Puerto Rico. Inequality and poverty has gone up in Puerto Rico. The immigration of young professionals in Puerto Rico has incremented. Uh, uh, budget cuts to education, uh, to all the areas in which uh, you're supposed to invest in the middle of a, of, of a crisis. Unfortunately, uh, the austerity policies have moved the needle in the opposite direction. And that has created uh, a perfect storm in Puerto Rico, in which we have an economic crisis. Uh, um, uh, let's talk about the board. Fiscal crisis. Yeah. Going forward, yeah. Uh, what they did was, in Puerto Rico, they gave them... I would say duty free, not duty free, but they gave companies free loans to or free bonds to to invest and the American government just let it happen. They had like five billion dollars in debt and and it's rising. I, again I still I don't understand why we don't invest in people. We need to invest in in people. People. We invest in people, and the country. The country goes upward. And just like my home, uh, the Virgin Islands, it's stuck in a, I guess, whirlwind. That they think that if they. They give the rich people money, it go trickle down to the poor people. No, it doesn't work like that. You got to invest in the people, and the people will invest in you. Cycle the dollar. 
All right, going forward to our next story, it's on the voter, voter bill in Georgia. I see this advertisement on where this white lady says that President Biden is lying about the Georgia bill. But again, it's not about voter ID, it's about access. Uh, we're going to go to the PBS NewsHour to explain it. State legislatures across the country are moving rapidly to pass new voting laws amid former President Donald Trump's continued false claims of election fraud. Lisa Desjardins takes us to one battleground state and explains the raging debate. In Georgia this week, the sounds of American democracy still struggling and over an essential trait, voting itself. Outside the state house, protesters chant about access, fearful their ability to vote is under threat. Inside, the Republican-led legislature says the issue is security, pushing sweeping bills to rewrite state voting laws, blaming 2020. If you didn't see confusion this year, I don't know what you saw. Georgia's lower chamber, the House, has already passed HB 531, which cuts down early voting on weekends, adds ID requirements, and shortens the time to get an absentee ballot. The state Senate is also considering ending no-excuse absentee voting and automatic voter registration at the DMV. Debate has been sharply polarized. House Bill 531 will greatly improve our elections processes for all voters. HB 531 is textbook voter suppression. Voter suppression is racist. Voter suppression is white supremacy. This after record turnout flipped Georgia blue for President Joe Biden and in two close U.S. Senate races. It was a surge of civic engagement, like from James Hammond, who signed up as a first-time poll manager. I went from, in less than a year, being the guy that just comes in, presses the button, to being the person to make sure that the election is actually carried out fairly and equitably for all of the residents in the area. He says he saw passionate voters and a dispassionate, secure system. There was very little room for you to have voter fraud. Courts agreed, rejecting then-President Donald Trump's campaign assertions of fraud. From Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, same conclusion. We've never found systemic fraud, not enough to overturn the election. And yet, at a conservative conference in Orlando on Sunday, Mr. Trump again falsely raised the idea of fraud. We should eliminate the insanity of mass and very corrupt mail-in voting, and the Republicans have to do something about it. Republicans across the country are heeding that call. Some 250 election law bills in 43 states, concentrated most in swing states Trump lost. The Brennan Center for Justice is tracking it. Its president, Michael Waldman. There's a surge of restrictive voting laws being pushed by legislators, three times as many as just two years ago. They have the power to change the rules, and they are using that power to pick their own voters. Andrea Young heads the ACLU in Georgia. She believes Republicans in the state house are attempting a power grab by directly limiting voting. The result in November was an accurate reflection of the votes cast in the state of Georgia. And now that system is something that is under attack. There are 50 bills. Uh, that would unravel uh, the system that, that allowed 5 million Georgia.
opponents cry that's unfair. They say they want to restore credibility to elections now distrusted by Trump voters. State Senator Butch Miller. When we have not just dozens, but hundreds of people who call me and say, why is it that when I go to vote in person, I have to show a photo ID, but I can send in a request and just send in my ballot and nobody knows who it is. Do you see evidence that the system is allowing for fraud right now? There is clearly uh, inefficiencies, evidence of fraud that would overtake or over or change the outcome of the election. No. There, are there inefficiencies? Yes. But critics scoff, saying the laws would affect some voters far more, those who are older and those who are black or brown. African Americans are less likely to have a government-issued photo ID. We think that that's discriminatory. Especially in a place like Georgia with a deep history of racial restrictions on voting. And now you don't see, you know, dogs and billy clubs, but you see laws that are pretty plainly targeted at black voters. We asked State Senator Miller. Have you reflected on that history and why these voting reforms might... There are laws in history that, that we can't write, that we can't make well, that we can't, you know, erase. But we want to make sure that every voter has access to the ballot box. How we do that is making sure that we've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. Of course, Southern Jim Crow laws literally asked blacks to dot I's and cross T's, to take literacy tests, to vote. We pointed out to Senator Miller that supporters of those racist laws also said they were aimed at election integrity. He disavowed Jim Crow laws and said this effort is different. I don't think there's any obstruction to access. All we have to do is verify that the person is who they claim they are. And that's all. Is that all? One voter's verification is another voter's barrier. In Atlanta, poll manager James Hammond doesn't like the general direction he sees. Every American should have the right to vote, and we should not we should not block them from having access at any at any point. Many believe that access now hangs in the balance. Again, this is a common sense party podcast, and the Republicans are trying to move the goalposts, a straw man that they know. They saw that the number of poor people that voted poor black brown white that voted in the election the runoff and the presidential election scared them shitless they just realized oh shit we gotta move the goalposts we gotta make it harder for people to vote again the restrictions they put on the law does not affect affluent anglo-saxon neighborhood it affects poor urban neighborhoods that's what they're targeting again the voting law is not about IDs. Uh, it's about affecting urban urban areas. Like limiting the drop boxes. No absentee ballots. You got to get your ID. But who would request an absentee ballot? An older who can't get to the poll. And probably that older, older poor person doesn't have an ID. But guess what? We got to make it an effort to get the people who voted in the last election to come out and vote in the midterms that's what we got to do we got to start doing that and we're going to go outside the country to have their take on 
why the law is racist. Check us out. Hello and welcome to another DLDI US video. We recently took a little break from uploading, during which time we miss an incredibly important story. Now we're back though, we want to get right to it and address Georgia's voting rights bill. This bill fundamentally looks to change the way that voting works in the state and goes further than some might appreciate. It's also led to some controversial boycotts and some anger from Trump. So let's discuss what the bill does and the chaos surrounding it. Before we do though, as I said in the intro, we've just come off a few week break and we're hoping to get right back to making new content for you. So if you want to support us and help our return, then be sure to subscribe, like, and comment below the kinds of stories you want to see us cover in the future. Thanks so much for your support. It might feel like a million years ago already, but we're not that long out of the 2020 election cycle, an election year that ended bitterly, to say the least. Before the results were even announced, Trump and his allies began spreading a narrative of corrupt elections, rigged voting, and dodgy mail-in ballots. He echoed this in his speech on election night, where he used the backdrop of the White House to continue his claims that the election had been stolen. Despite tense and ongoing lawsuits, passionate speeches, and iconic locations, Trump's team was never able to make any of these claims stick in courts or anywhere else, and even justices that Trump nominated for their loyalty rejecting the case. This might upset some people, but as much as we try and stay as objective as possible, this is the absolute objective truth. These claims were never proven in a court of law or anywhere else, and many of them we've debunked on this channel. Anyway, with these claims of rigging in the air and Trump never really conceding, it's not all that surprising that the issue of voter rights and protecting the ballot continues to rumble on, with some Republican state legislators keen to stop the steal from happening again. One such state was also a major focus in the 2020 fraud claims, Georgia. Chances are that you've already heard at least a bit about Georgia's new piece of tinkering with election law, but many of you will have only heard the broad ideas about it. So let's take a moment to break it down and explain what's actually in the bill. The most famous, or perhaps infamous, provision of the bill, and the detail you're probably most familiar with at this point, is the part that talks about giving food and water to voters. And by talks about, I mean bans. The distribution of any food or water within either 150 feet of a voting location, or within 25 feet of any person standing in line, with the passing of this bill will constitute a misdemeanor. But the bill's changes don't end there, because it's filled with little details. And while we can't cover all of them, there are a few big ones. One of those is a significant set of changes to Dropbox rules. During the 2020 election, Atlanta's metro area had 94 Dropboxes scattered around the four sprawling counties that make up its urban core. During the next election, it will have a maximum of 23. This is because election officials can now only establish one additional Dropbox per 100,000 active voters in a county, or one per early voting site, whichever would result in fewer drop-off locations. On top of that, all of these Dropboxes will have to be inside government buildings or early voting locations, 
meaning that they can't be accessed when said building is closed. Early voting itself can only take place at its most expansive, from 7am to 7pm on weekdays and on periodic weekends. Keep in mind that 7 till 7 is the maximum. County officials get to implement such a time frame, with the minimum statewide default being 9am to 5pm. Now, you could try and avoid these time restrictions by voting absentee, but there's now more restrictions there too. Whereas before you only needed a signature to vote absentee, you now also need a driver's license or equivalent. The time frame for these ballot applications has also been halved from about six months prior to the election to about three. On top of all of this, it's now illegal for the state to send out absentee ballot applications to voters unsolicited, something that even Georgia's Republican officials did during the 2020 primaries. And remember, if you want to avoid the uncertainty of mailing your ballot in, you can only access a drop box during working hours inside early voting buildings. But perhaps the biggest move in this bill comes in the form of increased powers to the state legislature itself during the election process. For starters, the Secretary of State has now been booted out of the chairperson seat of the state election board. That position is now to be filled by someone appointed by the state legislature. Now, said nominee is theoretically supposed to be non-partisan, and there are provisions in place to help enforce that, like preventing members of the legislature from appointing themselves. But, I mean, having a partisan body appoint a non-partisan actor is always going to be at least a slightly questionable process. This serves a dual purpose of giving the General Assembly more power and giving the Secretary of State, who ruffled Republican feathers in 2020 by denying false claims about voter fraud, less power. Compounding this new burst of influence to the General Assembly is the provision of the bill that allows the State Election Board to suspend county election officials and replace them with a temporary appointment. Now, there are restraints on this process. The board can only suspend officials in four counties at one time. And in order to be suspended, an official has to clearly violated election board rules three times or demonstrated non-feasance, malfeasance or gross negligence in administering two consecutive elections. But this still amounts to a significant increase in the legislature's control over elections on a county level something that has made people more than a tad uncomfortable. It might not surprise you to learn that that's not the only part of the bill that's not gone over particularly well with people. Voting rights activists have voiced concerns over most provisions in the bill, with many particularly worried about the effect that this bill will have on black turnout. Things like stricter ID requirements have historically had a disproportionate effect on minority voters. And in a state as competitive and diverse as Georgia, that could have a legitimate impact on the election results. Adding more regulations to early voting times and restricting drop box access has also struck many as a way to discourage people from voting, especially those who can't easily get away from work to go to the polls during prescribed hours. And of course, stopping people from giving voters waiting in line bottles of water could have a disproportionate impact on urban voters who often face longer lines. In response then, some began to pile pressure on big businesses to boycott the state in protest. One organisation that did was Major League Baseball, who pulled events from the state. 
Unsurprisingly, those in the GOP weren't thrilled by this, including the former president, who objected to the cancel culture unfolding before his eyes. In response, he encouraged people to boycott the NLB, as well as other Georgia businesses like Coca-Cola and Delta. These can be added to the long list of companies that Trump has encouraged supporters to boycott, including Goodyear Tires, Harley-Davidson, Apple, CNN, AT&T, Macy's, Rolling Stone, HBO, the entire nations of Mexico and Italy, Glenfiddich and Oreos. So it seems that maybe his issue isn't with cancel culture as such, but more when a cancellation doesn't fit his other interests. Anyway, it seems that he's not the only one to take issue with this decision, with state Democrats like Stacey Abrams also questioning MLB's decision. Following the MLB's announcement, Abrams released a statement saying that while she respects boycotts, she didn't want to see Georgia families hurt by lost events and lost jobs. The MLB, after all, would have brought entertainment and extra economic stimulation to the state. It's hard to see this statement without thinking about the political lines that Abrams is being careful to tread, probably in anticipation of a potential run for governorship in 2022. In wording things the way she did, Abrams manages to support the idea of the boycott without angering Georgians who might be frustrated whether or not they supported the bill at the loss of a major event in their state. Time will tell whether this boycott ends up working and if sustained pressure on Georgia will change anything or if it will deter other states from contemplating similar changes. Ultimately, though, whether Republicans and Trump like these corporate interventions, they could prove powerful in years to come. While the Senate and other political institutions in the US grant additional powers to white rural voters, corporations generally lean towards the interests of younger and more metropolitan citizens, and could prove to be an interesting counterweight. How this ends up shaking out in Georgia, across the country, and how this impacts the party of business's relationship with corporations will be interesting to observe over the months to come. But it's clear to see why some are worried about the implications of this new bill. Let us know what you think of the bill and of the whole situation in the comments below. Also, make sure to subscribe. Yep. That is the tactics of the bill. We gotta get uh urban and poor citizens to vote on more common sense issues such as this bill is going to go through anyway because they have the votes uh they have the power but it's really scary to see that if the they remove the secretary of state from running the election and they can appoint, appoint someone who's independent, but you know they're not independent. Uh, it's actual stealing an election. That shit is so that shit is so ironic. But this is America, man. This is what it is. All right, moving on to our next story. Yes, the Haitian prime minister was assassinated. Um, but uh, was there a justification for it or... Or was it, uh, who benefits from it? Uh, we're going to go to Vice News. Uh, this is a, a long piece and to see what the people are talking about.
Thousands of angry protesters have been marching through the streets of the capital of Port-au-Prince, demanding that President Jovenel Moïse step down. The president's term officially ended on February 7th, but Moïse wants to govern for another 12 months because he took office a year after he was voted in. Now, these protesters are demanding new elections. Opponents say the president is stalling so he can grab more power. But he has the backing of the U.S. and Haiti's police force. This is obviously from some kind of rubber bullet or, or tear gas canister that's hit this man. But yesterday, President Moise said that the country can get back to normal. All is calm, uh, business as usual. This doesn't look like business as usual. Jovenel Moise was elected in 2016, promising to end Haiti's cycle of violence and corruption. But things have only gotten worse. Murders are on the rise. Kidnappings surged by 200% last year forcing many schools to close. Civil rights groups say many of the gangs responsible have links to Moise's government. The president denies this. Security forces and unidentified gunmen have been using deadly force to halt demonstrations. So protesters were pushed back from the outskirts of the city. They've now descended back towards the presidential palace. Police have lined up. And they're firing tear gas at the protesters scattered along this park right here. Everyone's trying to take cover. In the last two years alone, more than 180 people have been killed during protests against the president. And while we were at the demonstration, we heard about yet another victim. So right now we're about to meet up with the family of Ronaldo Friend. He's a motorbike taxi driver who was gunned down at the most recent government protest. You know, one of the things that we've been hearing from people that we've been talking to is that they're fed up with the gang violence and the kidnappings in Haiti. And this family is just another victim of that. Sometimes uh, to go out 
to see like my friends. I'm scared because the the situation, like uh, people like demonstration. I'm afraid like they kidnap too. We want to the government. We respect the law. Do you think that your brother will ever see justice? No, I, I don't think that because we don't have justice in Haiti for the time being. Now all the family wants is to bury Dufresne's body. They have no idea where the authorities have taken him or how they're going to pay for his funeral. Dufresne is the latest victim in Haiti's long history of political violence. People here have been demonstrating against it for years. These protest rounds are often so massive. There's different groups of protesters that come from different parts of Port-au-Prince, and they're meeting here at Resistance Square. Neighborhoods in Port-au-Prince are ruled by competing gangs who either support or oppose the government. The most notorious of these gangs is G9, which has alleged links to Moise's administration. In November 2018, they stormed the opposition-held neighborhood of La Saline, killing more than 70 people during a 14-hour rampage. The U.S. sanctioned two members of Moise's administration for planning the massacre and supplying G9 with the weapons to carry it out. They deny any wrongdoing. David Oxygen is a political activist. He believes the president is using the gangs to silence his opponents. Avec Jovenel Moïse, des milices qui escrivent dans des groupes armés, groupes gangs, qui fédèrent, donc qui sont gênés, dans tout cas c'est populaire, pour attaquer nous. C'est massacre qui a fait la saline, c'est massacre qui a fait de la ville, c'est massacre qui a fait de la soleil, c'est massacre qui a fait de la national. It's clear that there are thousands of Haitians who, like you, are willing to go out on the front line of this protest and display your anger. But there's another section of the population that is terrified of what's going on on the streets of Port-au-Prince. Is there another way to get what you want without resorting to, to violence? I mean, let mass populaire utilize manifestation. Jovenel Moïse attaque you. C'est gaz lacrymogène, c'est arme à feu pour fusiller les gens. C'est pour les gens, pour les gens. Pas de droit de protestation. Et nous, Jovenel Moïse, à travers donc réseau, laboratoire kidnapping, les installés dans le pays, qui fait tout le monde paix. Laboratoire kidnapping, ça, les rivets au moment, dans le dernier niveau, ça nous est les premiers niveaux piquent. While the capital is in chaos, the president is nowhere to be seen. We tracked him down all the way on the other side of the country in Port Pay. He's celebrating Carnival. Port Pay is just a hundred miles from Port Prince, but it feels like another world. What's happening in Port-au-Prince right now? Violent protests? 
but is this really over a uh, couple months? So he's supposed to be in office uh, February 7th, 2022. Is that really what this is about? Who really benefits from from this? Uh, we're going to go to CNN. Check this out. Nationwide manhunt is underway for the foreign hit squad behind the assassination of Haiti's president. Authorities say more than two dozen people were involved in the murder, including Haitian Americans and Colombian ex-military. Now, as Haitians take to the streets, the White House is sending FBI and Homeland Security officials to Haiti to assist in the investigation. CNN's Matt Rivers reports from Port-au-Prince. Haitian police wasting no time as the countrywide manhunt for the final suspects in the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse intensifies. Less than 48 hours after his murder, authorities released details about the suspect, some of whom they claim are in this video. Police say there are a total of 28 people involved in the attack. Three have been killed, 17 are in custody, and now they're looking for the final eight. Authorities also say 26 of them are Colombians and two are Haitian Americans. This audio recording that CNN has not been able to independently verify allegedly captures the moment when the assassins gained access to the private presidential residence the night of the attack. Officials say the men posed as U.S. drug enforcement agents to get in. As police clean up the scene of a shootout they had with some of the assassins, all that remains burned out cars, bullet holes, and bloodstains. So this is all that's left of one of the cars that officials say suspects in this assassination were using when they engaged in a shootout with police. This car as well was involved, and you can see a bullet hole here that was left over as a result of that shootout. The aftermath of that night shaking the country's already fragile political state. Confusion abounds over who is actually in charge. In the hours after Moise's murder, Haiti's interim prime minister, Claude Joseph, assumed power and took command of the police and military, declaring a, quote, state of siege, temporarily putting the country under martial law. Experts say it's not clear if he can do that. But Moise appointed a new prime minister just days before he died, Ariel Henry, who was supposed to be sworn in this week. Henri says he should be the one leading the morning nation right now, though it looks unlikely Joseph will step aside. Uh, the constitution is clear. I have to uh, organize elections and actually pass the power to uh, someone else who is elected. Yeah, man. People in power will not give up power willingly. Uh, see, someone else got got power, and now, hey, are they going to give up the power? Uh, more on the story from ABC. Today, this after a total of 17 men, including two U.S. nationals, were arrested in connection with the murder. ABC's Marcus Moore is in the capital city of Port-au-Prince for us. Tonight, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security dispatching senior officials to Haiti to help investigate the brutal assassination of President Jovenel Moise, the country in utter turmoil, the Haitian government requesting American troops to help keep the peace. The government officials here declaring a state of siege. They urge people to stay in their homes and to remain calm. And that is what we have seen here. This is a moment of calm, but the concern is 
that this city, Port-au-Prince, and this country could descend into chaos at any moment. Tonight, many questions remain about who killed the president and why. Nearly two dozen people are now under arrest, two seen here dragged by police through an angry crowd. Officials parading suspects in front of the cameras along with a large cache of weapons. Two are American citizens, James Solage and Joseph Benson. A Haitian judge leading the investigation says the Americans claim they were only acting as translators for the assassins. I asked acting Prime Minister Claude Joseph about their role. They have said that they were only uh, merely translators um, in the midst of this, this operation um, and that they were set up. Um, is that true? Only the investigation can tell. President Moise's uh, murder has left um, a power vacuum here in, uh, in Haiti. And a lot of people um, in the international community in the United States um, are watching and wondering who's in charge here now. Um, is, there, is there a power struggle going on right now? Who is in charge here in Haiti? I don't know if there is a power struggle. I'm not paying attention to whether or not there is a power struggle. I'm paying attention to uh, giving justice to President Jovenel Morris, uh, his family, his uh, wife, uh, son, and daughters. The people are in shock. The people, myself, myself, I'm in shock because no one would ever think that President Jovenel Moïse will be killed, tortured in his own house. Nineteen suspects are from Colombia. The head of the Colombian police says they traveled into Haiti in two teams through the Dominican Republic. He said they were recruited, but wouldn't say who recruited them and why. They wanted him. They wanted to remove him. They wanted him to step down. And we can understand what is going on. But let me let the investigation uh, tell the truth. Do you, do you believe... Um, there's any possibility that this crime that was committed here in Haiti was an inside job? Listen, those foreign mercenaries couldn't just come on their own and kill the president. How can you be sure that you have the right people? We do have the right people, and they, they are under investigation. They're talking now. So we are going to give justice again people in power rarely give up power willingly uh, yeah you, you gotta figure out who benefits the most from it is it America is it Colombia is it the American Republic cause not only that the prime minister was killed uh, their protests in Cuba. Uh, it's unrest in Cuba. The Caribbean is getting hot right now. So, moving on to our next story. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Uh, rate us, review us, give us five stars at Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and also on YouTube. Our next story is Cubans are marching in the streets for whatever they need. Uh, they say 
they fighting against communists. No, you're fighting against a dictatorship. There's a big difference. Uh, let's get the 411 on this. Some of the top stories we're following right now. Chaos in Cuba. Thousands of protesters went to the streets to express their frustration over pandemic restrictions, the pace of COVID-19 vaccines, and what they say was government neglect. Right now, Cuba is going through its worst economic crisis in decades. Next, four people were arrested and dozens of weapons seized at a hotel in Denver. Police feared a Las Vegas-style shooting during an all-star game after receiving a tip from a housekeeper. The employee discovered the guns and found more than 1,000 rounds of ammunition inside. Yep, they went to the streets. They went to the streets uh, protesting. They say they're standing with us, but are, are we standing with them? Uh, CNN News, CBS News, sorry. And now to Cuba, where thousands marched across several cities yesterday in some of the biggest anti-government demonstrations on the island nation in decades. People took to the streets protesting food shortages and high prices as the country suffers through a crippling economic crisis exacerbated by the pandemic. So Menlo Borges is in Miami, where demonstrators also came out this weekend and showed solidarity with Cuban protesters. Manny, good morning. What's going on? Yeah, good morning to you. We're standing outside of Versailles restaurant. This is typically the epicenter of demonstrations and rallies here in Miami's Little Havana neighborhood. And last night was no different. Thousands came out here to support those protesters in Cuba. And while the demonstrations here may be commonplace, what's happening in Cuba is not only rare, but historic. Thousands of protesters gathered in communities around Havana and across the island nation, shouting freedom and we are not afraid. Although protests began peacefully, they soon took a more violent turn as police and special forces moved in later on to break up the demonstrations. President Miguel Diaz-Canel himself made an appearance at one protest and spoke with some of the citizens who confronted him. Demonstrators here say they are fed up by food shortages, rising prices, collapsing infrastructure, and the government's response to a rising number of COVID-19 infections. On Saturday, Cuba recorded nearly 7,000 new cases. On Cuban television, Diaz-Canel blamed the protest on the U.S. and its trade embargo for a severe impact on Cuba's recent economic downturn. The Trump administration passed many more regulations, many more sanctions against it, which basically has cut off all income coming into Cuba. Portia Siegelbaum is a CBS News producer based in Cuba. I think the Biden administration, he at least said at the beginning he was going to review this policy and make changes, but nothing has happened. Several politicians have expressed their support for the people of Cuba and those protesters, including Cuban-American Senator Marco Rubio. As one defector told our CBS Miami affiliate, seeing those protests was, quote, magical. Anne-Marie? Well, speaking of that, do we know what the latest is on the ground in Cuba now? Uh, that's something we will have to monitor. Uh, we don't know at this point whether those protests will be allowed to continue, as you saw that there are already uh, government pushback against those demonstrations. So today will be a day to see uh, 
maybe who has been arrested, how those people are being treated, whether the internet is being restored on the island because it was uh, knocked out in several parts as those demonstrations were happening. Uh, so there are a lot of questions, of course, about what's happening there. But you can imagine that here in Miami, these people who have come out here to support those protesters may be out here again uh, expressing their support. Yeah, the people in Miami. Uh, you do realize that the governor of Florida enacted a, a protest law where that you can be arrested for publicly protesting. But guess what? Just because it's uh, BLM, guess what? It's not BLM, so it's okay in Florida to do so. Uh, uh, the next one is, uh, let's hear from a Cuban voice. Uh, this is one of my favorites. This is Dan Lebertard. Let's see what he says. I want to mention, because I believe that we're the only show with this kind of reach and this kind of roots in what it is that's happening in Cuba, to talk to you a little bit because of what this thing is that you guys are listening to and watching. And because many of you have seen us grow up over 17 years around here and know that we're a proudly Miami show and know some of the history and weird politics over the last year that have happened in Miami that create great tensions and the rest of the world, whether it's Ilian Gonzalez or what's happening now in Cuba, it can feel very lonely to have 90 miles off our shore something that only we care about that largely feels like America, which believes in freedom, isn't paying attention to. And so one of the places that it made an appearance, I don't know, 20 years ago with Ilian Gonzalez, is the very idea of a mother dies at sea trying to get her son to freedom. Cubans understood that child needs to stay here. America was like, he needs to be with his father back. And I think that's a fundamental disconnect between not understanding what it is to flee freedom or find freedom and just being born into freedom. And so what you're witnessing right now in Cuba is something I did not see happening in my lifetime. I thought, and it felt for a long time, like Fidel Castro was going to outlive my parents. He outlived my grandparents. I thought, and even though there's hope today, still fear that that regime, that communism, that free Cuba is not something my parents are going to ever get to see. But what I saw yesterday, I've never seen before, which is a people so desperate. And now keep in mind, when I say a people so desperate, Stigats, these are people, that, that ocean is the world's largest graveyard. Haiti and Cuba, people trying to get to freedom with such desperation that they get on vehicles made of crap and tires and, and whatever else and don't know if they're going to see their family again because of the level of desperation, and yet still they fear the government enough to choose that form of desperation versus protest in the streets desperation because we don't have medicine, we don't have food, we've reached a level of desperation that is uncommon, and Joe Biden just has just such a legacy-making shot here on stopping suffering 
stopping suffering. Like if you, I know all of this stuff and more than ever now just gets into the political realm, but the, the embargo, the, the embargo has not worked. And that party with ESPN in tow went to Cuba and played baseball games under the idea of normalizing relations. And those people are so desperate for freedom. They're marching in the street when marching in the street will get you thrown in a jail to God for an indeterminate amount of time. And with no need to explain it to anybody, never mind trials or anything else. I mean, I've told you about, I think Cuba's still doing firing squads. They were recently. But how does Joe Biden do that? Um, I mean, just get in the game, first of all. Yeah, like, but you're talking about military action. I am talking about, first, being a leader that believes in freedom and takes up that cause publicly and with voice. Start there, okay? Well, because he, he did, and let's read the statement from Joe Biden on Cuba, as a lot of local politicians uh, with uh, of national repute have been seizing on this opportunity. Usually, Cuban politicians are on the Republican part of the aisle. Joe Biden says of Cuba, we stand with the Cuban people in their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. The Cuban people are bravely asserting fundamental and universal rights. Those rights including the right of peaceful protest and the right to freely determine their own future must be respected. The United States calls on the Cuban regime to hear their people and serve their needs at this vital moment rather than enriching themselves. You want him to do more? You want more? I want a free Cuba. Is course, what I, right. That's, that's yeah. what I want. I am not a politician. I do not have solutions for you. I'm not the person who calls for violent military action as ever a solution. I'm just telling you that you've got a weakened people and you have the optics of these people are suffering so much that, again, I'm, gonna, I'm going to explain it to you again, Stugatz, a desperation so great that that ocean is a funeral home for people trying to get toward freedom. That desperation has never resulted in my lifetime in what I saw yesterday, which is streets flooding. They fear that governments, the guys, people do not understand. They don't, I mean, I know that we make jokes about our devices listening to us and Alexa, they're neighborhood spies. Sorry, they're, I'm having trouble connecting to the internet. Understand it looks like a router issue, Never mind so try restarting it. I can't Unplug the router, the wait 20 seconds, then plug it back in. This is a Common Sense Party Podcast. I do apologize. Alexa wanted to chime in about Cuba. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Read us, review us on Google, SoundCloud, and today we are on Spotify. Rate us for you, give us five stars. Back to Dan. The streets, when they feared that government so much in mass and said, do something to us. It's, it, there are reasons that you haven't seen this since it, so, so rarely and not since 1994. But just so we're clear, them marching in the streets, just by doing that, they are taking a massive risk. Yes, yes. yes. not running the country. Fidel is gone, Raul Castro stepped down, now the president of Cuba is Miguel Diaz-Cancel, and the people are marching
marching in the streets, and it's something that I thought would resonate when I was growing up. Are you, the day is finally here that the Cuban people are marching in the streets looking for freedom, and we've seen a lot of this in Hispanic countries, and it doesn't necessarily... It doesn't work. It, it doesn't resonate. The SOS calls, like, it, it sweeps social media, but the United States has kind of gotten out of the great liberating a military force game that they were a few years ago because of how widely unpopular those things landed here. Yep. This is this is uh what do we do moment in history? Do we invade Cuba? We had a we still have an embargo on that's is working against the people because the dictators are what? They taking all the money. If America does not see the wealth disparity happening, the same thing that happened in Cuba can happen here. You can't starve the people. Yes, we are America. We put an embargo on an island nation. We Obama opened it up. But I think Joe Biden will do the right thing. Again, people in power will not relinquish power willingly. Do we have to we have to um, invade? I don't think so. Is the blockade working where the people are rising up against the communist regime? Maybe. Uh, how long will it take? Who knows? And for our final story, uh, Texas Democrats, uh, we left our job. Favor rest to stop a bill. Check this out. This is NBC News is once again taking center stage with two Republican-backed voting bills moving rapidly through a special session of the state legislature. Democratic members of the Texas House are expected to bolt from Austin today in an effort to block the measures from advancing. NBCnews.com senior reporter Jane Tem joins us now. Jane, what more can you tell us about this expected move by Texas Democrats? All of it is a little confusing, especially when you consider this is a Republican-controlled legislature. Absolutely. So Democrats don't have the votes in the Texas legislature to stop this in any way. In the last session, they used delay tactics and this brief walkout to stop the bill before the session ended at the expiration of the session. The governor, of course, called another special session, said, you know what, do that legislation right now. So their plan is to do this again, but this is not easy, and they risk arrest by fleeing the state. So what they're going to do, I'm told that 58, uh, at least 58 Texas House Democrats are flying to Washington, D.C., where they plan to spend three weeks waiting out the end of this special session. Uh, now, as I said before, the Texas Constitution allows lawmakers to compel their absent peers to show up to work. So they can say you need to come back, which is why they have to go across state lines where they believe that state troopers and the legendary Texas Rangers just don't have jurisdiction to bring them back. Elsie? So floor votes on these voting bills are expected as early as Tuesday in both the Texas House and the Senate. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen now, but President Biden is also expected to deliver a long-awaited speech on this very issue tomorrow. Any indication in terms of what we might hear from the president and whether or not what he has to say could make a difference in Texas and other states that are also trying to pass restrictive voting laws? You know, it's clear that Texas Democrats 
believe that federal voting legislation is the only option for them to permanently stop this bill that they oppose so deeply. Uh, we know they're talking to the White House because they were at the White House meeting with Vice President Kamala Harris weeks ago after their first walkout. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see them in communication with the Vice President as well as the President. I mean, I think also a fair amount of advocates feel like uh, Joe Biden took a little bit of a back seat in the previous fight for federal voting rights legislation. But I think where you can expect to see Biden is taking a really strong stand on this. And they, Democrats feel like, you know what, we have some momentum that if we can get ourselves to Washington, D.C., if we can paralyze the Texas legislature, we can have the president out there talking about the importance of voting rights. They're hoping they can turn the tides and make it possible uh, for, for voting rights to have some federal legislation in, in Congress. NBC news. Yep. They left work. Isn't that awesome? Some part of the uh, Democrats are actually coming to a, a gunfight with a gun. They might not have all the votes, but hey, guess what? We can go ahead and take this piece of stall them out. Let's let's run out the clock four corners let's let's get this done all right uh we're gonna go to that moron uh ted cruz but ted cruz is an idiot check us out said i will call a special session after special session after special session until election of next year I don't know if that's the fate here, but how does this end, do you think, with lawmakers leaving the state? Well, I think it's going to end with the Texas legislature taking up and passing election integrity legislation. What you're seeing the Democrats do here, it is a political stunt. And, you know, I will say it's ironic, as they were getting on their private jet to fly to Washington, D.C., they almost surely had to show identification to get on that jet. And, and yet they're doing this in a fit because they don't want mail-in ballots to be verified. They don't want the signatures to be verified. They don't want basic integrity steps to be strengthened in the state of Texas. This is, at the end of the day, politics, and, and they need to get back to doing their jobs. And one way or the other, they will. Uh, one of the things, you know, you know, it's interesting, Bill, one of the very first assignments I ever had back 17 years ago when I was newly appointed as the Solicitor General of Texas, one of the first questions I ever got is the Speaker of the House of the Legislature. The Legislature was redistricting then, and the Democrats did the same thing. They fled. That time they fled for Ardmore, Oklahoma, the House members, and then shortly thereafter for Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the Speaker of the House asked the Attorney General, who was then Greg Abbott, my boss, he said, hey, do I have the authority to arrest fleeing legislatures? These Dem He's an idiot. Yes, he is. Because he left when his his uh, state was what didn't have any power, but here's a I want to hear you have you listen to this. This is when the rules benefit us. No more Alexa. And Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please say grand query. Is there any way for those members who have left the Capitol and the state to participate in conducting the business of the special session on behalf of the people of Texas? There is not, Mr. Meyer. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. 
Please state your inquiry. If the quorum is not present, can those of us who have stayed in the Capitol to do the jobs we were elected to do take up bills on the floor? That is not allowed under the rules, Mr. Meyer. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please state your inquiry. Can we at least hold committee hearings? We may not, Mr. Meyer. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please state your inquiry. When will the House have the chance to debate HB3 or any of the other items the governor has submitted for our consideration? Mr. Meyer, that is a hypothetical inquiry, but we may not conduct business until we have a quorum. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please start your inquiry. Mr. Speaker, can you clarify, are we able to take those issues up while Democrats are in Washington, D.C.? We may not, Mr. Meyer. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please start your inquiry. Is it true that the House rules were adopted by a unanimous vote? I believe that's correct. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please start your inquiry. Under those rules, can House committee chairs and vice chairs be removed from their positions? They cannot. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Meyer. Yeah, he is so pissed. That is just awesome. See, you go to a gunfight with a gun, and they'll be pissed. All right. Uh, I missed one story. They're releasing a book about uh, the insurrection. And Liz Cheney calls out Jim Jordan, yeah, the rapist. Uh, let's go to CNN. on January 7th. It, uh, General Milley and Liz Cheney are friends. They're close. They're having a phone call and General Milley says to Liz Cheney, how are you doing? And Liz Cheney lets loose about Jim Jordan, the head of the Freedom Caucus and a, a Trump supporter. And she says, quote, that effing guy Jim Jordan, that son of a bitch, Cheney said, while these maniacs are going through the place, I'm standing in the aisle. And he said, we need to get the ladies away from the aisle. Let me help you. I smacked his hand away and told him, get away from me. You effing did this. Uh, I don't think Liz Cheney needed or wanted Jim Jordan's help at that moment. No, but the point that you did this, Caitlin, is an interesting and important point to be making right now, especially because so many people running the show for the Republicans. No, the quote is, you fucking did this. That's just awesome. Uh, yeah. Do we take freedom for granted? This was our episode today. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Rate us, review us. Uh, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, YouTube. Uh, make us the best party, best podcast in the world. Today we touched on Moscow Mitch, Crazy White People Fear, Liz Cheney, the Arizona Audit Stealing Money, Cubans in the Streets, uh, the Haitian Prime Minister, Trump at CPAC, Puerto Rico Statehood, Georgia Voting Bill Explained, and the Texas Democrats doing their part to stop uh, Texas House Bill. Again, I'm your host, Dwayne Otley. Uh, we will see you next week. We're trying to spread the common sense.
We're out. All is lost. Not while I'm standing. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape me.